A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today is Friday with friends, and I have such an amazing new friend, uh, someone that I have admired for years. She truly has been like a mentor for me in the vegan world and beyond. Her name is Colleen Petrick Goudreau, and she is a recognized expert and thought leader on the culinary, social, ethical, and practical aspects of living compassionately and healthfully. Please enjoy this podcast. I had such a great time talking to Colleen and look forward to many more chats and hopefully some kind of trip with her in the future. Enjoy. Welcome, Colleen. I'm so happy to have you on today. Lauren, thanks for having me. It's lovely to be here. You know, I have been a longtime admirer. I just need to start out of the gate saying that as a preface. There are just a few in the vegan world who really symbolized to me my anchors and uh, my mentors in a way, and you are one of them. Gene Bauer was the first... I know, we're going to cry, right? <laughs> he was the first 19 and a half years ago going to a hoedown in Farm Sanctuary. And my husband and I were a vegetarian at the time, and we went to this hoedown, you know, thinking, all oh, we're just like so wonderful. And then we heard these speakers about battery hens and milk, and we just were like, what? And But the presentation was so important. Lori was married to Jean for a while and Lori really got to me. She's a little more like confrontational, but I actually kind of needed to hear that. I don't, I don't know why, but I've always loved how Jean is because he's very compassionate and ve- he's a little softer in that way. But anyway, th- that was our start. And then Probably over about a decade ago, I saw you speak at Vegetarian Summerfest, which we had been going to four years. I know that was like over a decade ago, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was before social media and all that. And you spoke, and I just, I fell in love with so many of the attributes that you carry. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about public speaking, but. I just wanted you to know that background. I wanted to share that first. And so for the listeners, I would love for you to launch right into how how you became a vegan. What was your path? Yeah, well, like yours, I think so many of us start with removing some of the most obvious things. And usually that's flesh. And usually it's the flesh of first aquatic animal or first land animals and then aquatic animals because I was definitely that person who stopped eating land animals 
and then was still eating, you know, shrimp and fish and and then eventually stopped eating anything that came out of or off of an animal. And I say that because, you know, I had the same experience. You know, I read Diet for New America by John Robbins and that book covers everything. It covers meat, it covers dairy, covers eggs. And I just missed the boat on the eggs and dairy. And I think this is why I spend so much time emphasizing that we can't get complacent and we can't get arrogant about where we're at because so many of us, I mean, when we think about, you know, there's so much judgment about people who aren't where we're at yet. And man, if people judged me the way I see people judging others, I don't, I just don't think it would have felt very good. And I don't think I would have felt very welcome. Not that it's a single club, but I certainly wouldn't have felt like I belonged. And I went several years between stopping eating land animals and stopping eating, you know, eggs and dairy. And for me, it was just staying open. I mean, the fact that you went to the hoedown, you were vegetarian, you didn't know what to expect. You didn't know what it was going to do to you, you and your husband. You didn't know how it was going to affect you. I I mean, I'm the same way, right? We're curious. We want to explore. We want to know more. We want to be better. And that was, that's always been my intention in living. And so I just kept reading books, kept asking questions. And it was when I read a book called Slaughterhouse that just floored me. And quite literally, I mean, I was on the floor <laughs> crying. Yeah. It was just horrible. And, and you know, I don't even have to give details. That's how much we know it's not okay. Like it's, I don't even have to say anything. All I have to say is I was devastated. And it was the thing that made me realize it doesn't matter how animals are raised or what they're raised for or kept for, killed for. It's that in the end, they do suffer in these slaughterhouses. And and for me, it was much more ecumenical than that because it was this culture of violence that we create uh, paying for slaughterhouses. So the people who work in them, they're desensitized to their own compassion. They're desensitized to the animal suffering. They, you know, go home and they, you know, self-abuse and they abuse their families. There, there's, you know, evidence that there's a, more violence in homes where people work in slaughterhouses. And because they're so desensitized, they do to animals things that we can't even imagine in our worst nightmares or in the worst horror movies beyond just what they're there for (laughs) because it's unchecked violence. And it's literally a culture of violence. It's marked by killing. I mean, that's what they're there for. So we can romanticize it. And I I did probably, you know, we have these, uh, we imagine these farms and we imagine that it's not so bad and that it's part of nature and all the things we tell ourselves. And so that was the book that made me, my eyes just completely opened. And that was for me 20, 21 years ago, some, you know, something like that. So similar to you. And in becoming awake is, is what I like to call it. It has just, it was everything for me. It was like the, it was like the falling away of just crap and stuff and excuses and hypocrisy. I always say there's like some level of hypocrisy when we're like, I'm, I can, I won't eat that, but I'll wear that, you know, we're wearing leather and I don't know. It was all of it. I felt that's, to me, I said it was the easiest thing because it was freeing of those, of those, like those hypocritical chains, the, the tethering that, that we don't even know are there. And then all of a sudden, when we start looking at animals as at not as products at all, truly as we already know we love them, but really, really living that. 
Yeah, and that's what we're encouraged to do. We're encouraged. So when you're talking about the hypocrisy, I mean, really, that's the willful blindness that I talk about because that's we're encouraged to be blind, willfully blind. We're encouraged by our families, by the industries, by marketing, by the you know the supermarkets, advertising. I mean, and ourselves too, right? We we remain willfully blind, right? So so that we can so that we can cope with that cognitive dissonance that we experience, all of us. So hypocrisy, cognitive dissonance, it's the same thing. It's, I love animals and I would never hurt anyone and I want to eat meat. And I know that in eating meat, animals suffer. So how do you, how do you account for that? You have to either change your behavior or change the way you think about your behavior. And most of us change the way we think about our behavior as, so that we can keep doing what we're doing, but not think so badly of ourselves. And that's, that's it in a nutshell. We're not bad people. I was compassionate. You were compassionate before I became vegan, before you became vegan. But my compassion is fully manifested and there's no blocks to it. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I mean, right. The, the idea is that the things that were the most egregiously blocking my compassion, I love animals, I would never hurt them, but I'm eating products that have come from violence, that fell away. And so that's that willful blindness that, that I talk about. And I think it's really helpful to understand because again, in terms of just advocating for this way of living and talking about it, you don't have to be an animal advocate to talk about it, to advocate for it. But if you care about it, people ask you why you're vegan or vegetarian, or if you are an activist or advocate, I think we have to remember that people aren't walking around um, because they're so cruel. They're walking around because they're so willfully blind. Now I say willfully because there is, I mean, we do have to take responsibility. So it's not that we're not responsible. We all have to question. We all have to ask. We all have to take responsibility. But in the end, it's just so much easier to walk around blind than it is to, to change. Change is hard. Right. And, and I love how you said awake because I, you know, I teach yoga and these are, this is a great intersection and compliment because being awake is being awake to the suffering and our part in it. You know, just as much as it is being awake to the joy and love in life is that you you have all of it you have to be awake to. You can't kind of separate because there's so many people when you say like, you know, willf- willfully ignorant who are really honest and say, oh, I don't want to know about that. <laughs> and they're basically saying, I don't want to know because then I might have to change. And- That's what I think. And I actually <laughs> look at that as a very hopeful sign because because it means they know if they know the truth that they will be compelled to change. Yes. <laughs> so with the change they're afraid of, we use the excuses, oh, vegan this and vegan that and protein, whatever. Those are excuses. What it is, is I don't know what it's going to look like. And I don't know what my life is going to be. And I don't know how it's going to change my relationships. And I don't know how it's go- what it's going to mean for holidays or eating out or traveling when we can do those things again. I don't know what it's going to look like. It's the unknown that is so frightening to people. And it's the change that's frightening to people because we are creatures of habit. And so we hold on to what we know. We hold on to what's familiar. We hold on to identities that are familiar. We hold on to habits and behaviors that are familiar. And so when someone says vegan, they go, I don't even want to know. If you tell me, I know I'm going to want to change as if that's the worst thing in the world. But we have to hear when people say that. So when we focus on... The, the you know the excuses and all that. It's really just about how can we facilitate them feeling comfortable enough to change, to make, to take a step, to do something different. Just that's what we need to hear is that fear of change, and I think that's what we can guide people through. 
So at this time that you became vegan, I always like to think of like, it's like a, it's a conversion of the best kind. Like you found your religion and you're like, yes, I found you. That's the way I think of it is, is really a religious, spiritual awakening. Did you then immediately decide that this was also a path that you wanted to become like almost a profession, you know, your profession, becoming an animal advocate, or was that a slower process? No, it was pretty immediate. <laughs> I was already doing advocacy as a vegetarian for animals. And, you know, again, kind of all the same things, vegetarianism, not veganism, because it wasn't who I was. Didn't know about it. Puppy mills and vivisection. So I was already very interested in animal issues and felt very strongly and still feel very strongly about animal issues. And so did I think it would be a profession? I didn't know what it would look like, but I definitely knew that it was my vocation. And I started just doing what was right in front of me and started... I would I was already doing outreach when I was vegetarian. It's, it's funny because I moved to California. So this from New Jersey. And so it was kind of when I moved to California, I became vegan, which sounds very cliche, but <laughs> it's true. Um, and so I think about my, my pre-vegan life was also my New Jersey life and my vegetarian life, and my California life uh, since you know I've been vegan. And so I was an advocate, if you will, back in New Jersey, but I was a lone advocate. I didn't know what I was doing and just walked around handing out leaflets in the malls about puppy mills. <laughs> like, I didn't know I had to have a permit and these kinds of things. I was clueless. So I did the same thing. I just started just doing outreach. It was really this, you feel this just desire. And I talk about this in The Joyful Vegan, these stages that we go through, this desire to just share this information, want the world to know. And so I started, you know, I started, I was going to a Unitarian church at the time. I was doing leafleting. I was tabling during coffee hours. I was going on the streets of Berkeley and playing, you know, slaughter videos and handing out leaflets and, you know, just doing what I could. And what I love the most about that, and it's still part of who, what I do, is I loved the interactions with people. And I loved those moments when they would stop and watch the people, just like anywhere, just like online, people would make comments and they'd be obnoxious or they'd make jokes. But the majority of people either didn't watch or, or stopped and, and then felt what we felt, pride were shocked. And I could, I could, I well up thinking about these interactions I've had with people and the questions they then asked, that was for me, that was just golden. And that's when I just realized that I can keep doing outreach and I will and, and talk about the why, but I, but I really wanted to focus on the how. And so that's when I started teaching cooking classes and workshops and you know, this is all self-taught. This is why I didn't go to culinary school to, you know, become an... I, I knew more than the people coming to the class. I knew enough to that, that I knew enough more than they did for them to trust me. And it was those interactions in the class that I loved. And then that started the podcast and then the books. And so it's all been part of the same extension of, I want to, you know... I, I want to raise awareness and I also want to guide people through the process because they invariably have all the questions about how and, and how they can make the transition. So that's how I've done it. So I did know, I mean, I was, I went to grad school for English literature and for writing, you know, I love literature. It's still a huge part of my life and writing and words and language. I mean, it's just still part of who I am. And to be able to marry that with my other passions, animals and um, animal protection it is what I wanted. It, it, it is what I said I wanted. I just didn't know what it was going to look like. Well, and you just really named one of the first things I did notice about you. And I'm sure anyone who has heard you speak is that you are so eloquent 
And But the other huge element that I so admire about you and have I've strived in my own advocacy to be like this, and I'm just really telling anyone out there who is in the early stages of veganism to really look at Colleen's work, is the joyful vegan, your, your moniker. Because to be a joyful vegan and how you said you love interacting with people, and this is sometimes when animal advocates have... We love animals so much, but you can't demonize humans. We're in this together. Like we love animals, we love non, you know, non-human animals and human animals. And and you do this so well. And I think that's what's so attractive. And I'm sure if there, for lack of a better word, I'm sure your conversion rate is very high because of that, <laughs> because it's welcoming. It's really welcoming and it's joyful, right? There is there is so much darkness. And I think with new vegans, like you said, you do want to go out and tell anybody. It's like your eyes have been opened. And I, I always, it's almost like stages of grief or state. There's some kind, like there's anger. There's like, you just want to scream it out. Then you're going to, and, and there's all these stages. And what I tell people is, because they're like, oh, I went to this and this was happening and my husband won't do this. And I'm like, you can only model it. And then you hope that because you're modeling it and within that, showing joy, showing love, that people will want to model you. But you can't change someone. And that is, you have to think, what is the best thing for the animals? And the best thing for the animals is for us to be kind to humans in the process. Yeah, I mean, I can't, you know, I, I absolutely understand. I walk the line and I, I teach walking the line between passion and anger and you know, I mean, it's not that you can't feel anger. It's not that you can't feel, you know, just the horror of it, but but to dwell in it is where it's toxic. Not only for us, but also for anyone who would otherwise say, well, I want to live that way and look that way. And when I say look that way, I don't mean physical. I mean, just the, to radiate, you know, joy and authenticity and integrity and compassion and empathy. And that's to me is what this is about. And I say again and again and again that being vegan is not the end. It's the point is not to be vegan. I don't like I didn't like set out to be vegan. Like there's no goal called vegan. The goal is to live as compassionately and mindfully as possible. Veganism happens to be a great way to get there because it encompasses doing everything we can in our lives to remove the things that hinder us living as compassionately as possible, right? So you get rid of violence. Okay, that's a pretty good marker of living compassionately, right? You eat as healthily as possible. You treat yourself as you know as as well as you can. That's a pretty good marker for compassion. So the goal is compassion. And veganism is the way to get there. When you can focus on that, and when that is your focus, everything changes. But I understand the beginning stages of just you know taking it all in and you know bearing witness, but overbearing witness and looking but staring. Like so, we have to constantly balance. You know, we we need to look. We need to be accountable. We need to bear witness. But we don't have to stare. We don't have to dwell in it. We don't have to live in it, right? I, I often say that the animals don't need us to be as distressed as they are. They need us to transcend our distress so we can end theirs. Like, but I think there's this notion among activists, and not just animal activists. I think it's prevalent in, you know, in activism that if you're not angry all the time, if you're not outraged all the time, if you're not feeling the intensity of whatever it is you care about all the time, 
then it demonstrates you don't care. And so you, ha- and I find that a little false and kind of martyrish too, that, you know, and I don't think people are doing it consciously, but the idea that, you know, that you can't just let go because it would somehow mean that you're letting the animals down or the cause that you care about down. That's just false. It's absolutely false. We need to transcend that so that we can be as strong and capable, right, as possible to do the work that we really want to do. So, so yeah, it's about, it's about finding balance. And, and I do, and I, it's not, I, of course I feel intensely and I feel anger, you know, and I hate what happens and all of that, but but I do, I do think people, you know, I think people ultimately are good <laughs> and, I, and I think they want to do the right thing. That's what willful blindness is about, is that we want to believe we're good people. <laughs> so we reframe our actions so that we can keep thinking that. And, and we are, but we just, you know, we just need to be as honest with ourselves as possible to be as integrity, you know, to, to hold integrity as much as possible. So it, yeah, I'm, I'm joyful, but it doesn't mean I, you know, have my own, my own little tantrum sometimes too. Oh, of course. I think it's always, you know, every once in a while, I call it like lifting, lifting the veil. I mean, because we, if you've seen, if you've seen Slaughterhouse stuff, if you've seen videos, we know that, I mean, it's just, it's a visual and that's usually why it's so effective. It's that you can't escape the truth that's right there in front of you and the anguish and the pain and the terror and all of it. But like you said, you can't stare at it for too long because it will diminish you and it will and you will feel just fatigued by it. Because the truth is, if we sat there and thought about it all the time, we would actually, we'd either go numb or we'd just feel like we couldn't get out of bed. It's too overbearing. But I love your phrase, which I think I'm going to paraphrase it, but maybe you should say it about not doing nothing. You can just, yeah. What is it that you say? Well, right. To, you know, because my theory is that you know, people will do nothing when they think they have to do everything, right? So there's people who will say, well, I, you know, I could give up chicken and I could give up pork and I could give up hamburgers, but I could never give up X and the X is usually cheese, right? And so I've said, well, what are you eating now? And they're like, well, everything. And I'm like, well, why are you eating the chicken and the pork and the hamburgers that you said you could give up because you can't give up cheese? So give up everything else except cheese. And they go, what? Like <laughs> I can do that. Like I never right. thought about that. So my, you know, my motto is don't do nothing because you can't do everything. Do something, anything, because every step you take will make a difference and have a, you know, an impact on the things that you care about and the and the changes you want to make. And people just it blows people's minds when they go, I, I never thought about that. I thought I had to do everything in order to whatever, be valid, be real, be, I don't know what, but no, whatever you can do, start there. And then what happens is you're, you just, things start to open up because you realize, oh, I can survive without those things. I could thought I never could live without. And then you start to look in other directions that you never looked in before for the food, for the nutrition, for the, for the texture, for the taste, for the flavors, for all of it. You just start then opening yourself up, and that's what leads to the final life. Well, I don't need any of this. I don't need. I don't need any of it at all. Yes, and I agree. Those those steps are really important. And one thing that you know, there are so many things I loved about Vegetarian Summerfest. But one thing my husband and I did find a little upsetting, and it's not just that. It's it's it was just that we were all together. But you could see there was a schism in in within the animal 
activist advocacy world, there's the people who are absolute abolitionists, which I think all of us are in our hearts, but we also recognize that to get to that is just not going to happen overnight. And then the others who would celebrate the small wins, like the battery cages are now abolished. And and there is, so I think it's to show you that in every every world of activism, there is a lot you know, I think I think we see this in our country and in many different paths. There's real strong differing opinions about the best way to do it. And again, your approach I admire so much, and I I strive to be that way, as I said, because it's really welcoming. It's not saying like you got to give it all up right away or you're nothing. It says, listen, that would be wonderful. I would love for everybody to be vegan, but I'm also recognizing that everybody's on a different journey, different situation different comfort level. And, you know, the best thing we can do is open up the eyes and the heart along the path. And that path might take, you know, a long time, just like it did for us. And not only is it just imperative, it's realistic. Like, you know, if I believed that I like had this golden touch that everything we said just made people change, it's just not reality. It's just not. And so then what happens as a result of that? I would be insane. I would be insane. I would be insane if every if I had expectations of every conversation I had or video I put out or podcast episode or book, right? I would be absolutely bonkers if I then attached attached anything to that output because then I would be constantly disappointed that I didn't see the change. And so that for me as an advocate, outside of just what's reality, for me as an advocate, I, I mean, and this isn't even hard for me because I just know the reality is I have to step back. And anything that comes of it is a bonus. And I, this is not just words. I mean it. I mean, that's why I still... I mean, I don't... It's not false modesty, but there's still times when people say, you know you changed my life that I just go, really? Because I don't... I try to detach from it. I know the value of my work. I'm not denying that. I'm grateful for that and I'm very proud of it. But I really quite literally put my work out there and then the rest is not mine. And so that is what we all have to do as advocates and for anything we care about. I mean, just really, truly for anything. Expectations will lead to disappointment. And so isn't it just better to just do the best work you can do, do what you know is true, do it well, and then step back because that's all we can do anyway. And that's what, I mean, the schism that you're talking about in politics, in, you know, in advocacy, that's it, just the nature of humans. We create these factions, we become tribalistic, like we do everything to the extreme, right? Like, I mean, tribalism, we celebrate tribalism when we root for a particular sports team. That's tribalism. There's nothing wrong with that. When it gets to the point where it's literally like, but you're bad, for not liking my sports team versus you're different. That's the problem. And so, you know, we all, we need a push and pull in politics. You need all different parties. You need different philosophies. You need different ideologies to hone your own and to, you know, I mean, I think one of the things we do really poorly today in advocacy and in politics is that we have lost the art of argumenting, argumenting, argumentation, arguing, so that we don't... I mean, if you, if you want to be the best advocate, you should know your opponent's 
arguments like the back of your hand so that you can hone your own and be the best at what you do. What we do now is you shut everybody down who doesn't agree with you. We don't even entertain someone else's viewpoint. And that's the problem. The problem isn't that you have a different viewpoint. The problem is that you think yours is so perfect and right and there's no other, you can't even accept a challenge to it. And that to me says that it's a pretty weak argument if you can't even accept just not even a challenge, but just a question about it. And so now that's the problem for me is that we shut it down, cancel people. We just, you know, we go right to calling them names. I mean, that I would like to see that different. There's always going to be different types of activism. If I knew which one was the right one, I'd be doing exactly that and nothing else. Well, I think you're you're probably doing it. And I think exactly what you said is Along those veins, I would love, I was just thinking about this question that comes up a lot. You know, I, I lead teacher trainings and we go through just, you know, I present it and I'm always very honest. I'm like, this is, in my view, the easiest way to practice nonviolence, which is being nonviolent to, to animals. I think we, most of us grow up from a young age appreciating, if not loving animals. And by extension, wouldn't it be great if we didn't, you know, of subject them to violence and do it, you know, in the form of food, it's happening every single day in such a, at such a large scale. And so inevitably people, like some people like are immediately like, absolutely. And, you know, cause they were probably on the cusp and then there'll be a few and it, and I appreciate this thought, but I'm, I'm curious about what you would say. And they'll say, well, what about if I get, you know, eggs from the farm, you know, down the street, and you know it's a nice little farm it's not an agricultural farm and by all you know as even if after the eggs after the chickens no longer lay eggs they're treated really nicely and then they just kind of die of natural causes i i know what i usually respond but i first want to hear what you would say <laughs> oh it's such a complicated thing because when i hear that you know i was a psychology minor i mean i just love delving into people's Thinking. I mean, when I hear that, I feel like there's so much more underneath being asked. And I think some of what's being asked is how far do I have to go? Am I a bad person, you know, for for wanting this? Can I find a way around this so I can still, you know, do the right thing but not be too inconvenienced? Right. Those are the things I'm hearing underneath. So I want to answer the things underneath. I can answer the surface. Right. Because I don't, but I don't think that's what they're really asking. I mean, I can, you know, and the answer is, you know, kind of what you're saying. I mean, look, I mean, technically speaking, you know, technically speaking, if I had hens as females, they drop their eggs like we all do. If I want to put her eggs in my mouth, that is my prerogative. She's not hurt by it. It's, you know, gross. Gross. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I didn't think it was gross when I was eating eggs, but once you kind of really understand it, but it's not, I don't think there's harm. The problem is we see animals as commodities and someone who has hens for the purpose of selling her eggs sees her as a commodity. And even though, you know, they might keep the hens, sure, but there is going to come a time where, you know, these companies and people and farmers, they're not charities. They're not doing it because they are altruistic. And I don't mean that they're not altruistic people. I just mean that their business model is based on profits. And if it's not, then they're really poor business people. Like, because that's the whole point of the business. So even your farmer down the street is going to make decisions that is going to maximize profit, 
right? You know, even if they might sell for a higher amount, fine. It's still about profit. And if they're just keeping animals without getting anything in return, that's a really poor business person and they're not going to do that. So we have to just kind of really be realistic about what it is we're, we're hoping for. So underneath it, it's really the question is, is this reflecting your values? Is this who you are? I can't answer that question. I don't know. I don't know. But what about it bothers you that you have to ask me to okay it for you? Mm -hmm. I I don't ask people like, so if I go down the street and I pick some kale and there's a farmer there and is that okay? Like we don't ask that because it's an obvious answer and I don't grapple with the problem of picking kale, right? So. So that for me is what I would go to in my head. It doesn't necessarily mean I would say it that way. And I certainly wouldn't say it in a way that would make them feel judged. But really the question is, how, what do you think? What, do you, mm-hmm. what does this mean for you? Does this reflect who you are? I can't answer. I can't answer that for you. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. I, and I, I respond similarly. I, what I say is, that sounds like a much nicer way of acquiring eggs. I said, but you know, even if that's 0.0000001% of the hens, you're still contributing to the idea that it's okay. It, even if you do it in the most compassionate, quote unquote, way, it's more like you said, does it align with your values? And I said, so ultimately, if you're contributing to it, even in a nicer way, you're still contributing to that idea that they're there for our use. And I said, and I, I, a lot of those labeling are there to make us feel better, <laughs> you know, quite frankly, like you said, like, you know, it's just to make us feel better for doing something that we probably at some level know doesn't really feel right. And aren't they brilliant? Because they, the marketing experts know that we're compassionate and they have to tap into that because if we knew what was happening, if they told us for real, if they called it what it was, right? And of course, no one's going to do that. Uh, we wouldn't want it because we're compassionate. So they know that. And I think that's, you know, that's the brilliance of the marketing, you know? So yeah, I mean, that's, that's really the bottom line is, is and I, I know you'd agree with this. We have to qualify and say that, you know, when I, what I said about the chicken's eggs does not hold for any other animal, doesn't hold for cows, doesn't hold for their milk because they have to be pregnant and, and give birth. So I'm making the point specifically about eggs because that's the one that comes up so often. If I have them in my backyard, is it okay? And really, again, like you're saying, it is such a, it is not the reality. Most people don't do that. I and mean, everyone says it, like, you know, 99% of the, or say 95% of the eggs sold in the United States, at least, uh, they're sold from battery cages. So like everybody believes this. But it's like no one's actually, <laughs> very few people are actually living it, right? Right, right, exactly. So moving on to your cooking, because honestly, I have a lot of, and I'm not just saying this to uh, kiss your ass, <laughs> although it's, but uh, your your book, and now it makes sense to me that you are not a trained chef because they are very, that the, they're so delicious. But what I love about them, and there's so much variety, is but they are doable. You know what I mean? It's like oh my gosh, I can make this exquisite meal, but I'm not going to be slaving away all day in the kitchen. I'm sure that was intentional with this part of like, if you're going to try on a new way of cooking, I'm also not going to make it super, super challenging. How did you decide to to go that route? Was that just natural? 
same thing. You know, I think just because I'm just naturally an advocate in the sense that I'm thinking of the person I'm trying to help. I'm not, this isn't for me. I didn't, you know, I don't create recipes for the joy of creating recipes, you know, and I'm a terrible business person because I could have just continued writing cookbooks. You know, they, the publishers want me to keep writing cookbooks and I'm not going to just keep creating recipes for the sake of creating recipes. And that's the truth of it. I wanted to create recipes that people will use. Like the mm-hmm. best compliment I get is I, I use your recipes. Like I love them and I use them. Like what better compliment is that? So it was always from the very beginning, what am I trying to accomplish? What's my aim? What's my intention? And with every recipe I create, it's to it's whatever the answer is to that question. With the baked goods, it's to create the most familiar, comforting, you know, traditional, easy uh, baked goods. For a coloring vegan, it's obviously I want to focus on the color and all of the gorgeous, you know, antioxidants and the phytochemicals that make all of these vegetables and spices and herbs and fruits all, you know, flavorful but also um, healthful. For the vegan table, it was around just really good everyday foods, but also how to plate them because that's a lot of challenge that people have is like, okay, I make this thing, but I don't know, like, what's the main dish? What's the side dish? Because we're so used to in our Western culture, kind of that construct of a plate. So it's always definitely with the aim of how will they be used? What's the point of them? And I love cooking, but I don't want to spend hours and hours in the kitchen. I want to just make good food and then, you know, go about my day. (laughs) How long did it take you to create those books? Because you don't just have the recipes that you've created. You really write. I mean, that's where your beautiful writing comes in, but you really personalize it so much. That's what I always give those as gifts because I'm like, this is her tales and her sharing and her writing will be such an accent to, to you in your journey toward veganism, not just the actual food itself. So that must have taken some time, I would imagine. Well, yes, and uh, it's I, I was build on what I'm doing. So the vegan table, for instance, it, you know, the majority of those recipes are from the cooking classes I taught. I mean, I taught for ten years or so by the time I wrote that book. Is that right? Oh well, wow! At least five years by the time I'd written the book. Yeah, about five years by the time I'd written the book, and so I had accumulated a lot of the recipes. Same with the baking, but by the time you know, but baking was. First, and so I had recipes from that. But I, you know, I had cooked when I was younger too, and I had been collecting recipes. I had notebooks of recipes, and so and I love just modifying recipes. And I'm pretty good at looking at a recipe, not my recipe, just looking at a recipe online and being. I can see if it's going to be good or easy to make, um, and I don't just mean easy, but I mean good. Like I can right. see, and so I love taking recipes and go. I can tweak that, and I can change that, and I can make it better and make it easy and accessible for people. So yeah, and then when I did Color Me Vegan, uh, that I didn't have a ton of recipes. And again, same thing. I didn't want to do it at, for novelty. Like I could have done recipes that were just like, okay, what's a what's a weird red fruit I could use or a red spice I could use for the red section? Well, who's going to go out and buy that weird red fruit? Like, right? I wanted it to be real. So that took time, but I love research. I love the process of writing. So once I had the recipes, and of course, you know, they all require testing. It's fun because each book kind of took about nine months. <laughs> so I had this like a natural gestation period. <laughs> I love uh, that's it. the initial writing. Of course, there's the you get it back and you gotta do the edits and more and that kind of thing. But the I'm kind of cradle to grave, as it were, about nine months. Okay, so I have a couple of final questions here. I mean, I could talk to you all day, but this one 
What what keeps you up at night worrying about the state of the world today? People. Hmm. Our lack of discernment and inward looking and and backward looking in that I feel like we have we have done this again and again and again this being problems the tension the stress that we're putting on ourselves each other we've been doing this again and again and again for thousands of years and we have texts and we have people to look to to learn from <laughs> so that we cannot repeat the same mistakes again and again and we just keep choosing myopia and not broadening our thinking and our behaviors and our relationships and so that's the stuff that's the stuff that that does keep me up because I know that we'll go on and we'll do continue doing this and we'll continue getting better Laura I mean the irony is that yes we continue doing this and we just continue doing it badly we do learn eventually it's just that we could learn a lot faster I mean I think the vaccine is a perfect example like you know it turns out you could actually produce a vaccine within a year like you know everyone's like it's never been done with under six years like you know that's not going to happen like turns out when we put our mind to something we can do it. And so I vacillate between, I just wish we would speed it up and we are getting better. It's just slow. I do believe in progress. I am not a pessimist. I'm not a cynic. I actually am a realist and, I, and I'm a student of history. And I, and I know we are better today. If, you know, I think Obama said it. If you could pick any day today, you know, today or any day in history from yesterday beyond that you would want to live where you're thriving, where you know, where there's you know, food, where there's access to medicine, where there's all the things that we measure progress by, you would choose today, <laughs> no matter P- what Public day. sanitation. I mean, you just think back Thank like you. even over like a hundred years ago. I mean, the difference, like it's crazy. Years ago. I mean, yeah. our, our grandparents, like, you know, I mean, I'm still cleaning up. I find garbage because we live on a hillside and there's a hillside above us. Garbage like used to just be buried, and so like I still like you know find the garbage that's just been kind of unearthed because that's how we used to do things fifty years ago. I mean, you could ten years ago we are better today than we were any other day before today. Now that doesn't mean that the, when people hear that, and especially progressives they, who don't believe in progress apparently, because they just think nope, if it's if it's still bad, if there's still work to do, we're just bad. And it's like no, that's not the way to look at it. We have work to do, but we can learn from the progress we made to keep making progress. And that's where I'd like to see us all spend our time is on what can I do better? Let me look back um, so that I can speed this up and, and, and do better. And in the end, all I can focus on is myself. And so that's the Amen. Kind of- Amen. And well, and I love that. And you kind of answered my my next question was, you know, what brings you hope? And it sounds like that's it. Is that similar to me? You believe that, yeah, you have you can be a realist, but also positive. You can you can be dissatisfied with the speed, but also excited that it can maybe quicken, you know, at some pace. I think you have to ha- you have you can you can be suspended between the two, being like, you know. But you can't stay, again, you can't stay in that angry zone like nothing's happening. I mean, we've been vegan about the same amount of time and there's been huge monumental changes. 
And if we look at where we are right now, uh, maybe as a new vegan, you could you could look and be like, why is it? Why are so few people vegan? And it's like we can say like there are many more people that are vegan. There are many more vegan options. There, there's like people know what vegan is. I mean, I, when you used to go to the restaurant you know, even up to 15 years ago and you'd say vegan and people didn't know what that meant and you'd have to describe and they'd say, well, how about fish? And I'd be like, no animal products. That means no flesh, no dairy. So it, you know, it's, I always say like we were traveling and I think we were in Puerto Rico and I said something like vegan. She's like, okay. Or I was trying to say, you know, like nothing with dairy or, and she's like, oh, vegan. And I was like, yes. I mean, I was, I, you know, it was, it was amazing. And that's progress. That's huge progress. Yeah, it's a, it's just a matter of what perspective you hold and what you want to compare it to. You know, uh, Rebecca Solnit said, you know, this is this is Earth; it will never be heaven. You know, you know, but mm. we're not. But it's not going to be perfect. But it is. But it is still pretty darn good. And we are getting better. We could just like we all just kind of kept our heads down, did our work, didn't worry about every other person and what they say and do. You know, create the meet more people who do what you do, collectively do that together. I mean, we would just get so much more done instead of just like and fighting with the other person and criticizing the other person and and these little tiny these little tiny differences. I talk about the narcissism of small differences. Um, it's not my phrase. It's a it, it, it's a thing where we tend to argue with the people who are the most like us. Right, kind of low hanging fruit versus like like so that's why you have this like the vegetarians and the vegans or the or the animal advocates and the animal activists and the liberationists and the protectionists like whatever you have right these are like these are this narcissism of small differences oh my god if we just stopped and like let everybody like right ninety nine you agree with ninety nine percent of right but there's this one percent you're going to focus on the one percent so if we all just did our work stepped back. You know, work with the people who are in alignment with us, and don't worry about everybody else, because our work will then shine, and it will take on the power, and it will take on the momentum that it needs to. But if you're wasting all that time and getting all this, you know, getting all cloudy from all of the muck that you're constantly going over into, you're just wasting time, and you're just you're not doing the work that needs to be done. We need you to do the work. We, there's work that needs to be done. We can do it. We can do it faster. Um, and it just takes each of us staying kind of focused and vigilant. I love that. So just closing off here, what are you up to now in and where would you like to be? I'm sure you're like one of these people that's pretty here and now, but what would you personally like? And it doesn't have to be about veganism. It could just be in your personal life too. I know, by the way, we're gonna have to have another podcast and just talk about gorillas because we both went gorilla trekking, which is life changing, yeah. right? It's just life-changing. And what do you have planned or what are your goals? Were you in Rwanda or... Uh, Uganda. Uganda. Oh, the Wendy, yeah. Or Uganda. They just had some more more trackers killed. It, it's so... And, you, and these, these trackers are... I mean, Mark and I would just be like, these guys run like five, mi- five plus miles to get there. They take us, no problem, on these, you know, crazy, crazy-ass hikes. And then they're running home and they're just the brightest, kindest spirits. It is, it's devastating. It really is. They're heroes. They're absolute heroes. Yeah, we fell in love with that whole region. We've spent most of our time in Rwanda 
and we're going to Botswana um, in December. So we're hoping the travel is going to open back up again because, you know, we've been doing these, these trips, which have been great. So taking folks with us, we had to postpone everything because of COVID last year. Yeah. So that's, so looking forward to traveling again. That's yes. That's the, uh, so you have trips. So tell us about that. You have trips where you take people. Yeah, yeah. So I have partners who do all the itinerary. We create these incredible itineraries. We've been to Vietnam, Rwanda, Botswana is in the, at the end of this year. We've done several trips to France. Um, we're doing Italy this year. We've been to Thailand, and uh, and they're wonderful. So we create these amazing itineraries, you know, with like-minded people focused on the culture, the people, the food, and of course animal protection. So we go to wherever we can to support animal protection efforts in the country we're in, and it's it's so inspiring. And I've watched friendships blossom and form. And it's just absolutely beautiful. And the food is incredible. These are luxury. I mean, these are like fives. Like you want to come and you want to be spoiled. Come on one of these trips because the partners that I work with, these are very dear friends of mine. We just love kind of creating all of these surprises and just 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 joy and abundance. Uh, so people don't have to feel like there's anything lacking. No, uh, they, yeah. Yeah, the, the eco chic in Africa is next level. People think sometimes you're, slu- you know, you're like t- intense, and they have no idea that the 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 amazing accommodations that are available. Totally, and they need us. You know, I, I have a podcast episode on on eco tourism. Is it real? Is it is it really a thing? Is it something you're too wary about? But I really, but a lot of these countries that rely on the safaris. They're able to pay. I mean, all of it funds the protection of these animals, the camps, the the tours you pay. You know, like you're saying, the accommodations. All of it supports the protection of these animals. And especially with COVID, when travel just dropped, non-existent, uh, that's when they saw a real increase in poaching because they knew that they didn't have to worry about the tourism industry, and there weren't going to be you know Western Europeans and you know all the people who you know. I mean that's the reality. So anyway, the point is it it really does make a difference and and I I can't wait I can't wait to get back there. And have you already filled that trip up? Botswana has two spots left. Um there was a couple who just I think they're older and they just didn't know what the future was going to hold so they mm-hmm. they they're not coming but we have two spots but that so yeah so that that's in December and then we have uh, France and Italy in September and October. So CPG trips CPG for my name cpgtrips.com Find, all right. So where can everybody find you and all this information out? Yeah. Joyfulvegan.com. That's and Joyfulvegan on Instagram. Oh, yeah. well, Colleen, it's been such a pleasure. And really, honestly, um, I've been wanting to do this for so long. I can't even tell you. Uh, I just wanted to tell you what an impact you made on me long ago and continue to. And I, I really wanted to show you off to all the people. So for everybody out there, please follow Colleen, go get her cookbooks there. Those are the ones I always recommend for that very reason. They're beautiful, they're delicious, and they're very you know easy to do if you don't consider yourself a cook. And so thank you so much for all your work, for just being a joyful vegan in the world. Really admire you. I would give you a big hug. And by the way, I was thinking, I completed it. You said you went from Jersey to California to become a vegan, but I went from North Carolina to New Jersey to become a vegan. So we... We completed this. We completed it. I love it. Oh, I didn't know that. Where are you in New Jersey? I'm in Princeton. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I've been here 25 years. So yeah, I can't, that's when I became vegan uh, a few years after being up here. So yeah. Oh, I love it. We'll have to talk more about it. We have to talk about New yeah. Jersey. Talk love- about New Jersey. <laughs> I know. All right. Well, thank you very much. Such a pleasure. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. And as always, I am pulling for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.